Queen Elizabeth II is the longest living, longest reigning British monarch, as well as the world's longest serving female head of state. In her reign as queen, she has gone through 13 prime ministers, from Winston Churchill to Boris Johnson. What's more, her popularity has never been higher. This morning I decided to just Google that and I said, how popular is Queen Elizabeth II? And her approval rating is above 75%. Her popularity, no doubt, is due in part to some of the recent movies that have been made about her, as well as the specials that have been on TV about her life and that of her family. And what has made those programs so unique and accurate and special is that when they put them together, they used letters and diary notations and personal appearances, televised events, as well as eyewitnesses' accounts, so that the once rather private life of the queen and her family had been put on public display in a dramatic presentation. And some of those programs are somewhat entertaining. If you are at all familiar with her story, you know that Queen Elizabeth assumed the throne as queen in 1951, when her dad, King George VI, whose story is told in the movie The King's Speech, died unexpectedly at the young age of 56. His daughter Elizabeth was only 25 years old, and she understandably struggled with all of the responsibility that immediately fell upon her. She wasn't sure how she would handle it. Not long after being crowned and still grieving the loss of her father, who she adored and was very close to, she received a letter. A letter from her grandmother, Queen Mary. And Queen Mary encouraged her to embrace her royal position with determination and dedication. The letter read in part, Dearest Elizabeth, you must put these sentiments to one side now that duty calls. Your people need your strength. I have lived to see three great monarchies brought down by their failure to separate personal indulgences from their duty. While you mourn the loss of your father, you must mourn someone else. Elizabeth Mountbatten, which was her official name, before she became queen. For Elizabeth Mountbatten has now been replaced by a different Elizabeth. Elizabeth Regina. And Regina is simply the Latin phrase which means queen in her own right. And then her grandmother wrote this. The two Elizabeths will frequently be in conflict one with another but the crown must always win. I want you to listen to that line again. The two Elizabeths will frequently be in conflict with one another, but the crown must always win. You know, that storyline about the old and the new Elizabeth happens to be a fantastic analogy to the Christian life. See, you and I are now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. We have been now crowned as royal members 
of God's family, and we are now members of a royal kingdom of light. But we still maintain a citizenship here on earth, but we also have an eternal heavenly citizenship. And what's more, we also have two natures. Two citizenships, two natures. And those two natures live inside us. And they're constantly in conflict one with the other. And that conflict is talked about in the scripture passage that we read from. And what Paul says is that you and I now have before us two options. Two options is how we're going to live our lives. Either we can be controlled by the flesh or by the Spirit. If we make that decision to be controlled by the flesh, we will manifest the vices that are talked about in verses 19 and following. But, Paul says, if you allow the Spirit of God to control you, you will manifest the nine virtues talked about in verses 22 and 23. And we're not going to take the time this morning to review what we've said about this section in the past, other than to just simply remind you of four important points that will really help you understand this passage. Number one, this fruit is produced by the Spirit. And it's foundational to who we are. Friend, what makes you a Christian, the distinguishing mark of a Christian, is that they have residing within them the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the fruit is singular in nature. It comes as a package deal. You can't pick and choose these nine different fruits and say, well, you know, I think I'll be patient today, but man, that's not on the agenda for tomorrow because I'm going in to work. And I supervise people. I, I I can't be patient. No. This comes as a package deal. And we are to manifest all nine virtues. Third thing we said is that fruit is something you can see. There will be a recognizable evidence of God at work in the child of God. And if there is no evidence of that in a person's life, I think that you and I can question whether or not that person is a believer. And finally, the fruit of the Spirit comes in sets of three that are displayed in the context of relationships. The first three talk about our relationship to God, love, joy, and peace. The relationship to others is talked about in patience, kindness, and goodness. And finally, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control deal with the relationship that you and I have towards self. Last week we talked about patience, and we said that that's a special word. And it's a patience that, it's it's not talking so much about patience under the trials of life, But it's a unique word that speaks about patience with people who might otherwise make us angry. In other words, it's not being short-fused. It's showing restraint when we are wronged. We refuse to retaliate when we find ourselves being taken advantage of. We're slow to anger. We're full of grace. We forgive the sinner and the sin. We forgive the transgressor and the transgression. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says we're patient with everyone all the time under all circumstances. And this morning what I want to do 
before we go to the Lord's table, is I want to talk about the next two virtues, kindness and goodness. What does that word kindness mean? Well, again, it's a very interesting word in the original. It's a word that means goodness of heart. It's a virtue that always seeks to do good and intends only the very best for others. It's a word that speaks about a sweetness of disposition, about being benevolent and kind. It's that ability to act in a positive way for the welfare of those who tax your patience. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to remove those abrasive qualities so that you're kind to your family and your co-workers and your neighbors. It's the same word that's used in Titus 3, 4 through 5, where it says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's a word that's used in Ephesians 2, 6 through 7, where it tells us that God saves us by grace and He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... Now again, here's the purpose of us being shown the kindness of God so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Maybe you've never thought of this before, but you and I were saved so that God could demonstrate in us and lavish upon us the riches of his grace with deeds of kindness forever and ever and ever. It's talking about God's goodness and kindness. And then in Colossians 3.12, he says that we as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, we are to put on or to clothe ourselves, as the King James says, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, I, I think it also needs to be said that this kindness does not mean that we're not indignant over sin. Doesn't mean that we just, you know, don't get grieved over the sin of our world. Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is a kind, loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving God. But at the same time, he does not overlook iniquity. Which is, of course, why he went to the cross. Which is why he was punished to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. So that his goodness and mercy and kindness can be extended to us who are sinners. And then to make sure that we don't forget that, God ordained the Lord's table. And you know, as you think about this whole concept of, of kindness, God in the person of Jesus Christ, is the perfect model and embodiment of goodness, gentleness, tenderness, and kindness. And you and I are to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to show kindness. We're to be gentle as, as, as believers, as, as Christ followers. Titus 3.2 says this, we are to be gentle and we are to show consideration to all men. 
Another verse is 2 Timothy 2.24, where it says the Lord's slave or servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And again, as we've said before, the source or the power, the enablement for this kind of behavior is that it comes from the Holy Spirit. I want you to see something. You're in Galatians 5. I want you to turn to your left, just a, a page or two, to Gala- 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's worth our time in turning. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul here is talking about the hardships that he endured in his own life. And look at 2 Corinthians 3.6. He says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our Ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and riots and hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. Now look what it says next. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. When Paul says, in the Holy Spirit, that little phrase is a beautiful statement where he's talking about that you and I are able to show that kindness through or by or in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, how are you and I able to live this way? How are you and I able to show kindness to people? Well, it comes about when we yield to the Spirit, when we walk in the Spirit, when we are filled with the Spirit. He grants us this virtue. And it allows us to take a non-retaliatory spirit towards those people who have wronged us. And friend, every day with everyone we come in contact with, we have the opportunity to let the fragrance and kindness of God flow through us so that people will be able to see Jesus Christ in the way you and I live. Roberto Di Vincenzo was a professional golfer from Argentina. He died a little more than two years ago. And interestingly, he was most famous for not checking a scorecard correctly at the 1968 Masters Golf Tournament. Somebody else was keeping score. Each player, when they play, keeps the other one's score as well as his own. And then you check those scores and you sign it. Well, his playing partner wrote down the wrong score for Roberto. And he signed that card. And he was penalized one stroke. And he missed the playoff. Afterwards, he said, what a stupid I am. (laughs) He didn't speak English well. But what's interesting is that early in his career, he was as surprised as anybody when he won his first professional golf tournament. And there on the 18th green, he was presented with what at that time was the largest check he had ever received. Members of the press were there, pictures were taken, they were celebrating. And when he left the clubhouse and got into his car, DiVincenzo saw a very sad-looking woman, and she approached him, 
in the parking lot. And she said, it's a good day for you. And he said, yes, yes, it really is. She said, not so good for me. She said, I have a baby with an incurable disease. And that baby's in the hospital. It's a blood disorder. And the doctors say that my little baby will die. And Roberto was so overcome that in broken English, he offered to help this woman. And he did the incredible. He took out a pen and he signed the winning check that he had just received over to this woman. And he said, make some good days for the baby. A week later, he was in the clubhouse at the next PGA tournament. And a PGA official walked up to him and shared with him that the woman who had approached him in the parking lot was a phony. She was a fraud. There was no sick baby in the hospital. She wasn't even married. And the PGA official said, she fleeced you, my friend. She took your money in a lie. And Roberto DiVicenzo looked at the official and said, you mean there's no baby in the hospital? No baby in the hospital. There's no baby dying from a blood disease? No. There's no child in the hospital without hope? And the official said, that's right. And at that point, Roberto DiVicenzo grinned broadly at the PGA official and said, that's the best news I've heard all week. Friend, that's a man who showed kindness. I want you to quickly turn. You were in 2 Corinthians 6. We'll get back to Galatians 5 in a moment. But I want you to turn to Luke 10. I want us to just see this real quickly in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. And I want to quickly just point out three characteristics of kindness. Luke chapter 10, and I want to begin reading at verse number 25. Luke 10, 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Wish we had the time to develop this fully, but let me just mention three characteristics of kindness that is displayed by this man. Number one, it is compassionate. It cares about people. That's the way Jesus was. He cared about people who were hurting. In the middle of a crowd, he saw hungry, tired, needy people and was able to hear the cries of a leprous man or a blind man or a lame man. When Jesus saw a funeral procession, he was moved to sorrow and grief. Friend, that's what compassion and kindness does. It starts with compassion and then it moves to do something. And that's what this man did. He took action. Two other men in this story saw the same situation. And you know what they did? It says they passed on by. And the difference was the two, the priest and the Levite, asked what will happen to us if we help him? Well, the Samaritan thought, what will happen to the man if I don't help him? And the good Samaritan did something. It was a risk. And finally, while it starts with compassion and moves to action, it results in a person's life being transformed. And that's what you and I need to do. See, kind people are sensitive people to the needs of others. Philippians 2.4 says that we should look not only out for our own interests, but also the needs and interests of others. Kind people look for opportunities to encourage others. Kind people tell the truth and care enough to confront or rebuke a brother or sister in Christ when necessary. Kind people look for opportunities to show kindness and bless others and care for them. Let me give you a little homework assignment, okay? I'm going to give you an application early in the message. It's not hard, but it's worth doing. And the application is this, for the next seven days, what I want you to do is try to be kind just once when otherwise kindness would not be there. And if your life is like mine, chances are you're not going to have to look very far. Because we live in a culture that seems to be in short supply of kindness. Maybe it's somebody in the church family. Maybe somebody in your office, in your neighborhood. It may be that that person has hurt you and even taken advantage of you. But look beyond that mistreatment and show them kindness. And then let me challenge you to keep a mental, if not written record, of that kindness and see how God works in your life. 
There's a third virtue in this little trio, and we'll close with this one. And it's the word goodness. And friend, this is such an amazing word. This word is found four times in the New Testament. And it's unique to Christians. In fact, Christians were the ones who coined this word. They, they actually made it up. You won't find this word anywhere in secular Greek literature. They coined it to express a kind of goodness that is deeper than anything anybody could experience. Because listen, it's rooted and grounded. It has as its foundation righteousness. In other words, goodness is the result, but righteousness is the cause. Now, I want you to listen for the next two, three minutes very, very carefully because I, I do not want anyone leaving here misunderstanding what I'm about to say. I think the problem with righteousness is we sometimes think of it in terms of having rigid standards and unbending convictions. And what happens is we miss out on the flip side of righteousness, and that is goodness. Nothing wrong with righteous convictions. We have to have them. But oftentimes in the defense of those righteous convictions, we can become unloving and uncaring so that all people ever see is that sterner, rigid, unbending side of Christian character. Again, nothing wrong with strong convictions, knowing what is right, believing what is right, proclaiming what is right, defending what is right, and battling for what is right. But friend, the backside of righteousness is goodness. I want you to listen to a verse. It's found in Ephesians 5. It's verses 8 and 9. It says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, Paul says, as children of light. Now listen to the next phrase. It says, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness. That's the same Greek word. This is one of the second time that it's found here. In the New Testament. Again, I said it's found four times in the New Testament. It says, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. I want you to think about what Paul is saying here. This blew me out of the water as I was reflecting on this. Friend, there's nothing wrong with strong convictions, knowing what is right, believing what is right, holding on to those convictions, living those convictions, battling for those convictions, proclaiming those convictions. But oftentimes we do so without having a tenderness connected to them. And sadly, in the case of some, all too often, that goodness, that tenderness is missing. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 1. 
This will be the last passage we look at, and this is really, really worth our time in turning. Matthew chapter 1. I want to suggest this morning that a person who showed this kind of goodness was the righteous man named Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to begin reading with verse number 18. And this fits beautifully with the Christmas season that we're about to approach. Matthew 1.18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged or engaged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 19. It says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Some of your translations will render that was a righteous man and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now drop down to verse 24. When Joseph awoke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. And you know the story. Joseph's engaged to Mary. He's had an ideal, perfect relationship. One that was filled with absolute purity. One where he treated Mary with the utmost respect. He honored her. And then all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And he was devastated because he knew her character and he also knew his. And he doesn't know what to do. But he's a righteous man. He was faithful to the law. And you know what he could have done? He could have had her stoned. He could have had her publicly shamed. And he would have had the backing of the Old Testament. But you know what he did? Instead of being so rigid, he planned to put her away and cancel the contract of engagement without publicly shaming her. You know why? Because he was a righteous man. And his righteousness was tempered with his goodness. I want to suggest that what you see here is a perfect manifestation of this virtue of goodness. It is righteousness being tempered with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. It's goodness. It's what should characterize us as Christ followers. And you know what? That's how God has treated us. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteousness. He maintains that righteousness, that holiness, that justice without compromise. 
but his righteousness is tempered with his goodness. And that's exactly what he did. When he poured out his judgment that you and I were deserving of on his son when he went to the cross and died in our place. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. And by dying in our place and offering to us eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of heaven, what you see is the flip side. The other side of the coin of God's righteousness. And that's why our observance of the table is so important. You see, when you and I come to the table, as we're going to do in just a moment or two, what we find here at this table is what ought to motivate us in regards to our relationship to other people where we say, you know what? Because of the way God's treated me, I'm going to show my family members patience and kindness and goodness. You've heard me say this before. The table reminds us what Jesus did for us. And how you and I, having received forgiveness, are to be forgivers. How you and I, having received mercy, are to be merciful. And how you and I, having received grace, are to be gracious. And that's what the Lord's table is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving to us this time, an opportunity this morning to pour into our minds and hearts this divine truth that is so practical and so important and so needed. Thank you for the miracle of regeneration and transforming lives. Thank you, Father, that we who deserved nothing have been given everything. And that the ground and the basis and the foundation of that gift, that transformation that takes place in the life of a, a Christ follower, is something that you want us to never forget. And so we pray that as we gather around this your table, may we examine ourselves, may we be strengthened, so that others may see the Lord Jesus Christ in us. And that we would go from here, determined to live lives that will bring you glory. And we pray towards that end, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.